My guest today is an unemployed or perhaps financially untethered rabble rouser. That's what it says on LinkedIn. The unemployed part is way less interesting to me today than the rabble rouser part. And he's not really unemployed. He's self-employed. And that's different. At least I think so. Remind me to ask him. Why would I ask an unemployed rabble rouser to be my guest on the podcast? Well, three reasons. First, it's Foulet, for goodness sake. Secondly, his rabble is all things nonprofit. And third, his rabble rousing is smart and comes from a place of fierce commitment to the sector. And a bonus reason, he's funny and very kind. Vu talks about the deep flaws embedded in the sector, the dysfunctional power dynamics, the impact of white supremacy on fundraising, and the list goes on. Vu has many good ideas about how we could improve as a sector. Today, I'm hoping we can kind of put it all together and talk about his aspirations for nonprofits. A visioning exercise, if you will. What does the ideal nonprofit look like? Does it bear any resemblance to the model we have today? Do we fix the model we have or build something new? And then, after he draws this aspirational picture of what the ideal nonprofit would look like, I'd like to talk about what would have to be true in order to move us in that direction with more intention and more speed. That's where we're going. Enough from me. Let's get to the rabble rouser. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Vule writes the blog nonprofitaf.com. He is the former executive director of RVC, a nonprofit in Seattle that promotes social justice by supporting leaders of color, strengthening organizations led by communities of color, and fostering collaboration between diverse communities. Vu is a founding board member of Community-Centric Fundraising, a movement that aims to ground fundraising practices in racial equity and social justice. Vu was born in Vietnam. He and his family came to the United States when Vu was eight. He spent several years in Seattle, attending elementary and middle school before moving to Memphis for high school and St. Louis for college and grad school. He has a BA in psychology and a master's in social work, which I did not know. He is a vegan, which I did know, a father of two kids aged eight and five, also check, know that, and a staunch defender of the Oxford comma. Hi, Avu. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Joan. Thanks for having me back. So what's making you happy these days, Vule? Well, spring is coming, so that's been really, really helpful. It's January. Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Boo, it's January. It's not coming. (laughs) I know, but it is. We got like two more months. And also because after the winter solstice, we get like two minutes more of of sunlight every single day. True that. So it's coming. Okay. Yep. Yep. What's making you happy? What's making me happy? Besides Um, me being on your podcast again. uh, Yeah, you, you took the words right out of my mouth, actually. I'm going to the West Coast for a month. I'm, oh, you I'm, are? Yeah. Not, uh, yeah, I'm going down to um, uh, Southern California. I'm going to spend a month, two weeks vacation, two weeks just working from there, seeing friends I haven't seen in a really long time. I'm going to go to the San Diego Zoo. I've never been there before. I'm going to go to Big Sur. I've never been there before. So I'm going to be a little of a California tourist for a couple of weeks. Well, so. if you want to extend your trip, Joan, and come on up here, I'll, I'll treat you to some organic kombucha on tap made out of hemp. You have, it on, you have it on tap? That's, wow. You guys <laughs> are Seattle. really, you guys are really progressive in Seattle, huh? Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I was thinking about it when I read your bio, Vu, that I realized I don't actually know a lot about your upbringing. And I suspect my listeners don't either, sort of the path that drove you to nonprofit leadership. I know you live in Seattle. I know you're a vegan. And I know that that's where you landed, not as a vegan, but as a kid. When you arrived from Vietnam, I'd love to know what brought your family up from Vietnam. Yeah, my father fought against the uh, North Vietnam Army and he was put into re-education camp. So, you know, because he, he was on the losing side, they took all of our everything. We were impoverished 
and had to find a way to to leave. So lots of families had to find different ways to leave. So mine was lucky in that we we came through the Amerasian Homecoming Act because my older sister, adopted sister, is Amerasian, which are kids who were born of U.S. soldiers. Yeah, so we we adopted her, and because of that, it allowed us to come over to the to the U.S. And, well, so, and, and you were eight. What was it like for you then? It was hard. I mean, it was it was challenging because we didn't speak any English at all, and we lost everyone that we knew. Mm-hmm. And there was no, you know, like there was no cell phones or internet. We couldn't. We did not know if we would be able to contact anyone for a long, long time or see anyone again for years. It would probably be about ten years before I, I would see my relatives again. Wow! Wow! Yeah, and on top of that, my you know, I got teased at school all the time because I had a terrible haircut because my dad would cut all of our hair. And he, his, his, his haircutting skills are, are negligible. Well, and I can see you and my listeners can't. And I don't think you, your hair has ever looked so good as it looks right now, Boo. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. I know, I know you say this to all your podcasts, I uh, guess, <laughs> no, but I still appreciate it. <laughs> so if I have this right, there was a pad. The journey was Seattle, Memphis, St. Louis, and then maybe back to Seattle. And I, what, so I'm just a little bit curious about the path that led you to Memphis. Yeah, my parents uh, in Seattle, they were delivering newspaper and just uh, other blue collar type jobs. I remember waking up with them at like 3 a.m. to roll up the newspaper, the Sunday newspapers and deliver it with them. After a while, they're like, you know, we need something else. We want to own our own business. So their friends in Memphis were selling their convenience store. So my parents moved us over to Memphis so they could own a convenience store gas station. Really? And uh, I had to work there. I was very bitter. I was a teenager and I, I really hated having to work at, uh, at a convenience uh, store. Did that move, did they ultimately feel like that had been a good move for them? I think they probably regretted it some because mm-hmm. it didn't work out as well as they were hoping. They ended up working 15 hours a day, right. like seven days a week and never seeing their children except when we were at the store working there. It was rough. It was a rough few years for us. Did they return to, like, I, I don't know, the what's the status of your parents today? Yeah, they moved back to Seattle. And then we kids, we kind of grew up and went to college. Kind of grew up. I noted, I, no, I noted your, uh, <laughs> your <laughs> we kind of grew up. That's, I, I think about you that way, actually. Uh, yeah, so they moved back to Seattle. And then my, my mom, she died. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, right after I graduated from, from grad school and came back. And then my, my dad, he moved back to Vietnam just to be with his siblings. And you know, I, I think it was a little bit lonely for him because all of us had grown up and moved out of the house. And where's your sister? Where's your sister these days? Yeah, my older sister, she's great. She's here in Seattle. And my younger sister, she's also here. Mm-hmm. And they're doing well. Oh, nice, nice. So you went to St. You went to St. Louis because you went. I presume I'm going to guess you went to Wash U for undergrad and grad, right? I did. Yeah. 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 And what had you planned? So you were a psych undergrad and an MSW, right? What mm-hmm. um, What had you planned to do with those degrees? I was going to be a psychiatrist at first, which is why I I did the psych degree, but then I realized I didn't really want to be a doctor. <laughs> so, so then I switched to social work, which made my parents very proud for me to go from being a doctor <laughs> to a social worker. I assume you're being sarcastic? I'm being very sarcastic. <laughs> they weren't happy with this. No, they were not. What? So did you think you were going to hang a shingle and do therapy? I was hoping for that, but then when I went into social work, I, I discovered that there was there's different different tracks you can do in social work, right? It's not just family counseling, etc. There's also a lot of other stuff like nonprofit administration or community development, social economic development. So I went really into the more macro areas of social work, so more community development stuff, organizing community development. Would um. 
people who knew you when you were a kid, would they be surprised or, about the path your life has taken professionally? Or would they say, oh, this makes so much sense given what I know, uh, what I knew about Vu when he was a kid? I was a weird kid. So people are like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, people don't really understand. People in the Vietnamese community, and, and I would imagine other communities, don't necessarily understand what is some of these fields like social work, right? right? It's easy for people to understand doctor, engineer, lawyer, but community social economic development track of social work. I think some of us here still don't understand what that is. Right. So they're like, okay, we don't understand, but we never understood him. So it, it tracks pretty well. The weird kid thing and your, joyful, playful sense of humor. Was it? Was that an antidote? I just finished reading uh, Trevor Noah's memoir, and it was clear that his sense of humor, as well as his speed, and you'd have to read it to really understand, but he ran really fast, that these were two skills that he had that really served him well in his life where he was sort of rejected by those who were black and by those who were white. And I just wonder if you're, did your sense of humor, did you realize that that was a bit of a superpower as a, as a kid who was an outlier and weird? Yes. I think it was, uh, in some ways, a survival mechanism, mm-hmm. right? Because I, yeah. I stood out, yeah. and it was a very surreal situation. And I think if I couldn't find humor in, in the situation, it would have been a, a very difficult sort of childhood. Yeah. Well, yes, I think that that's true. It's really interesting. So Seattle, Memphis, and St. Louis. Clearly, Memphis was the least favorite of the three. But did you enjoy your life in um, St. Did you like St. Louis? I did. Yeah, I do. Uh, And Memphis is wonderful. You know, we had a difficult life, but the people there were so wonderful and so friendly. And St. Louis was really great. Yeah. I think I I was kind of in a a wash you bubble, though. Yeah. I didn't understand sort of the inequities that existed in St. Louis and East St. Louis until, until later. Until later. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So I just, I know we aren't talking about nonprofits yet, but I, I realized when I read your bio that there was a lot that I just said, sort of didn't know about your backstory. And I, uh, I suspected if that was true for me, it probably was true for others uh, who follow you and know you for your blog, but don't necessarily know sort of your roots and your backstory. So thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for asking, Joe. So let's get to the heart of the matter on this topic, on this podcast today. And I'm remembering that, so my blog it's what's really interesting, Vu, is you wrote, uh, I think this week, that this is the 10th anniversary of your uh, blog, that, you, that you've been writing your blog for 10 years. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So I started, I thought you'd been around forever when I started writing my blog. And I started writing my blog in October of 2012. So it was just like six months later. That's fa- I, I was fascinated by that. And very early on, when we connected, you said, I think you should change your tagline, Joan. Of course, you changed yours. <laughs> um, and that you felt that nonprofits were me- are messy was pejorative. And I kept countering and saying that it was a factual assessment of the model. And I, I, <laughs> I wonder if 10 years in now, if you actually still think I should change it, don't you think that that's a fairly factual ac- assessment of the model? Joe, you and I are going to fight to the death in the Thunderdome, you know, over this. You're right. It is factual. But that's like saying water is wet. Yes, it is. You know, sure, it's messy. But what isn't messy? Government is messy. Businesses are messy. The media is messy. Every single sector is messy. So I would say calling our sector messy sends a message that we are messier than any other sector when look at what's going on around us. I mean, look, look at our po- politics, right? It's just ridiculous right now. 
Well, but if I wrote a blog about politics, I might my tagline might be politics are messy. <laughs> and people was like, "Oh, really?" Yeah. Okay. All right. Know. I actually think that the reason that you found it you found it problematic was that it let people off the hook, like it, it, that it was it diminished. It, you found I, I don't really necessarily want to roll my tagline under the bus on this podcast. <laughs> but I just, I, I think it's, it's just kind of interesting. But I guess the point I'm making is that you yourself spend quite a lot of time rabble-rousing about the challenges of the sector, and some of them are inherent in its DNA and how it was built, the model itself. And so I promised listeners that I would push you to to riff, because I don't know, I think you're a good riffer. You're a rabble rouser and a riffer. Push you to vision the ideal nonprofit. You get to start from scratch. It's a totally blank canvas. And if you need to, you could pick a particular kind of organization. I don't I don't really care very much. I just want to bounce around what what it looks what, what yeah, what what's the let's let's go ahead, start drawing it and I'll and I'll pepper you with questions as we go. Yeah, well, thanks, Joan. I, I have been thinking a lot about this, and I'll probably write a book when I'm less lazy and there's fewer shows on Netflix to watch uh, <laughs> about this topic. But I feel like, first of all, the reality is that nonprofits exist because of the failures of governments and the market system, right? Yeah. So ideally, the perfect nonprofit system or structure would not exist because nonprofits may not exist because society is taking care of its people. So I feel like if corporations and wealthy individuals were paying their fair share of taxes and and they and, and government is representative of the people and have the resources that it needs to take care of many of these things in society, then we wouldn't have to go in and fill in the gaps, right? And then many of us can just quit our job and become a wedding singer, which I'm I know is your your dream, right? Did to, you know to, that I sing, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. You do. Yes, you're, you're, you're talking. You're, you're talking. I'm going to recruit you for nonprofit the musical uh, the, at some point. You're talking to the first female singing member of the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> I learned That's how amazing. to. I learned how to blend and stick out all at the same time. That's okay. that's brilliant. Okay, so fo- so okay, so this is a. Just get ready for those of you who are listening. We will get to the point, but there will be these digressions from time to time. That's actually <laughs> how our conversations roll. So in the ideal world, there are no nonprofit organizations. Do you think that's... There will be a few. I think there's some cultural organizations that do really critical work. Arts organizations. Arts organizations. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I think like basic needs organizations are probably not going to be around as much. We won't need as many homeless shelters or food pantries because government should be taking care of its people, right? So, but we're not, we're we're talking about the ideal here. But before we get there, so are there countries that do a good job, so just are, do a better job of taking care of their people and do they have fewer nonprofits? The Scandinavian countries are doing great. And actually I was there, I was there in in Denmark in 2012 and it was quite amazing an eye-opening to see because there were there were very few nonprofits. Interesting. But, you know, a lot of people were taken care of. There were still some challenges, though, that I noticed. For example, there was someone who was trying to start a nonprofit to help abuse and neglected kids because she was like, there's not enough support because this is not a universal problem. It's a, you know, and, and so the government has not been paying as much attention. And she was desperately trying to form a nonprofit and she was not getting help. And a lot of people didn't understand what a nonprofit was. I remember her saying that she went on TV to talk about this issue. And instead of people sending her organization money, they sent her flowers. She got hundreds of bouquets of flowers (laughs) because they just did not understand that nonprofits need money because it was a very foreign concept to them. I I think that I I actually think it's a foreign, it's okay, it's okay. (laughs) I think it's kind of a foreign concept to a lot of people <laughs> that nonprofits need money. That's true. But, you know, at least we, I, I feel like over here, we do have people understand, look, nonprofits, we need money. Of course, they have lots of restrictions and lots of whatever. There, there's, still, there's still a bunch of stuff. So, yeah, so even in the Scandinavian countries, when the government is taking care of its people, 
there's still a need for nonprofits because there's some needs that the government just cannot handle because it it, it is not universal to yep. be, to everyone. Good. Okay. So did ask you to be aspirational, but maybe we should take it down just a little bit of a notch and assume that, that the government is still falling short on its ability to take care of its people. Should we pick a particular kind of nonprofit? Would that be a good idea? So to like use as a case study, like a food pantry or a domestic violence shelter? Do you want to use an advocacy organization? What do you think would be more interesting to sort of tease out? Well, I... I think honestly, let's we can we can focus on a nonprofit, but I like maybe talking about specific uh, areas of work, right? You okay. and I last time we talked about community-centric fundraising, right? Yep. Because this is a universal thing that every nonprofit has to do. So in a in an ideal world, fundraising would be completely different. It would be community-centric. It won't be focused on the comforts of rich, mostly white donors, right? And it will end the hunger game, so that we're looking out for one another, and our mission sometimes. It's okay for us to admit, you know what? Maybe my mission is not as critical during this moment. And it's okay for me to help shine the spotlight on a different mission at this time. That's not how we've been trained to operate. We've been trained to fight with one another in this hunger games, right? So I I feel like no matter what our mission is in an ideal nonprofit structure, we would have the sort of fundraising uh, philosophy that is focused on understanding that we are in this ecosystem together, right? And our missions are interrelated with others and that we're not going to fight with one another for resources. We're going to work more collectively together in terms of fundraising. Okay. So in that world, do you, I'm going to be very specific, okay? Do you think in the, in the ideal, so where does the, the fighting come from, the, fight, the, the fighting, the tension, the competition that you talk about? What are the roots of that from your vantage point, Vu? A lot of it is from the way that philanthropy has been having us operate, right? And some of the some of the philosophies that have been undergirding philanthropic practices, like some of this idea that they're going to exist in perpetuity, right? So that's why they only give out five percent of their endowments every single year, right? And that means like trillions of dollars just being like sitting there, and so it creates this sort of false scarcity mindset. Uh-huh. Right. And then that forces us into fighting with one another for for resources. So in your Um, so in your ideal world, the funders don't sit on all that money. They don't. They they spend the money to address systemic injustice. It makes no sense to like save up. Let's say you have a whole bunch of water and then everything is on fire. And you're like, you know what? I'm just going to save five percent. I'm just going to put out I'm just going to give five percent of this water to put out the existing fires because I'm saving money, 95% for future fires. So good luck with this 5% of the water. Good luck putting out all the fires today. Well, look, if you don't put out the fires today, they're going to spread, right? In the future, future fires are caused by the existing fires we don't put out. So so in the ideal sector, funders would be like, you know what? We need to address this. We got to protect voting rights. We got to change tax codes. We got to help, you know, preserve the environment and stuff. They don't do that. And so in that ideal scenario, do those foundations give out until they go out? Do they, is that, so in your, in your ideal world, do they all sunset? Do they just give it until they run out? In the ideal world, progressive funders would operate like conservative funders. Conservative funders understand that if we invest in things, in leaders and in organizations and movements today, that it will create ripples for, for the future. This is why they spend five times more money in, ter- in, in supporting pro- and sort of indoctrinating younger people. Right, because they're you know, building into, an army. They are, and they're, and they're, they're great at it. You know, they're, they're doing this. They, they would spend lots of money to ensure that there's a conservative federal judges uh, across all different levels. Or school boards. And yeah, this is not what progressives do. You know, and they conservatives fund 20 or 30 years at a time. Right. And we're lucky if we get like a two year grant, maybe three years. We're like, oh my God, a three year grant, a multi year grant. That's amazing. Conservatives fund 20 or 30 years at a time. Okay. Okay. So, um, so I'm, I've got a couple of nuggets so far. <laughs> the first off is that there's a real aspirational world in which the government actually does its job and there is not as, there's not very little need for nonprofits. We take it down a level. The first thing we do is we, f- is we look at, 
this idea of community-centric fundraising. And in the way we get there is by having our funders think about funding differently. And in fact, what you're talking about is a funding model that is about investing today in all the places where you can build leadership in varying societal institutions that can be the change makers of tomorrow who will bring more will also bring more resource to the table. Did I get that right? Yeah. I think what you said, Joan, about investing in in, in leaders, right, for, for tomorrow, we don't do that very well right. in our right. sector, in our in the progressive side of the sector. I remember right? I actually remember talking to a search firm years ago when they were looking for leads to hire an uh, an open executive director position. And this was years ago and not sort of the late 90s. And the search firm said to me, I have looked for, you know, senior level people in the nonprofit sector for a long time across very many sectors. And I have to tell you that the LGBT community (laughs) is the worst. Like, I'm only getting like the same six names, (laughs) right? Is that there's just a, we have a leadership pipeline problem in the progressive space, it seems to me. I think you're, I think you're totally right. We do. And conservatives just do a much better job. You know, like if if you are a conservative pundit, a right-wing pundit or something, and let's say you get embroiled in a, a scandal, right? And well, the conservative movement would, would rally around you and ensure that you get a book deal, maybe a, a gig on Dancing with the Stars or whatever, right? <laughs> uh, a job on Fox News, whatever, because they know that your voice is critical for the movement. Over here on the progressive side, though, it's the opposite. We are treated like batteries. And as soon as we're burnt out and we leave, then another battery will come along. We just know that there will be a new battery. So there's, there's no valuing of people as, as much on this side. Okay, so, so let's talk about, because keep going on this ideal nonprofit. What were the power, so there's, there's a lot of problematic power dynamics in the, the structure of a nonprofit itself, stemming yep. with the board. So does the ideal nonprofit, as you draw it, and I'm, you know, I'm just trying to help you think through your book here, Vu. Um, <laughs> I have uh, all the chapters listed out. So. Okay. All right. So I hope this fits somewhere that this was just wasn't yeah. an idle hour that you're spending with me. Um, <laughs> does the ideal nonprofit have a board? What does it have? I think it does have a board, but the board will look different. And maybe it's not called a board. Mm-hmm. I feel like boards are in general, probably two thirds of them are useless, if not toxic. In, in our sector. I think that a third of them are actually useful. And you point this out, Joan, like it doesn't make sense for us to have a structure where a bunch of very well-meaning volunteers who see 1% of the work get to somehow make vast strategic direction for the organization. And it's problematic when we think about how white many boards are right. and how they are not reflective of the community but they instead they reflect the wealth that, that the organization wants to bring in usually, right? Yeah. Like we want board members who are rich or have connections to wealth. And we've lost the sort of like the purpose of the board reflecting the community that it's serving and being ambassadors for the community and liaisons for the people we're serving. We, we don't. It's all about fundraising oftentimes for many of these boards. So I think in the ideal structure, we have to think about what does the board look like? And people are exploring different board models now. People are exploring this sort of like uh, a minimally viable board, for example. So, which talk, is yeah, so uh, talk, yeah, talk to me about the models you're, you're seeing out there. Yeah, so minimally viable board, it's, it's just a board that does the very basic minimum and then gets the hell out of the way. <laughs> it's like you, you meet once a year, maybe you file the taxes and then you get the hell out of the way, right? And then maybe there's a, it can be coupled with a community board uh, of like, 30 or 40 or whoever is there, they don't have any legal obligations, but maybe they're the ones who should be driving the strategies and the values of the organization. Why do we let you know the legally, the board, the fiscally fiduciary board get to also drive values and stuff? I think we need to start kind of having an understanding of that and the challenges around that. I know that Ontario Nonprofit Network is looking at reimagining governance. So that's something I would, I, I hope people check out. Dream Writers Production also 
which is in also in Canada, Vancouver, is talking about an evolutionary board model where sometimes the board does nothing if that's what boards or staff want the board to do. It's like, you know, don't do anything this quarter. We just need you to relax, right? Or we just need you to support the team because we're stressed out right now. So the board should be supporting the team or doing what is needed. But instead, the default model is that we create so much work for the board to do. Because existentially, oftentimes we're, we don't want to face the fact that a lot of boards are actually kind of useless. When you say that a third, and I'm, I'm surprised you say the number is, is that high. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm surprised that you say it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not debating it. What is a useful, so what does a useful board look like to you? Um, this is, I'm not, I'm, when you say a third of them today are useful, how do you, yeah. how, what does that look like for you today? I'm not in the aspirational world. I'm just actually curious about this uh, 33% of boards that are useful. What makes them yeah, useful? Yeah, well, they're the ones that are supportive of the team. They, they keep a watch out on you know, maybe legal stuff that might be on the line. They support fundraising where they can. You're right. Um, you know, and also when there's like staff tension that they step in. You know, when when maybe the ED is being attacked publicly, they step in. Or if the ED is an asshole, they step in also, right? This, <laughs> so they can be useful in this. They can help to to shape the values of the organization if they are reflective of the communities again and they right. know what they're talking about, right? Yeah. Do you think I have generally found that smaller some smaller nonprofits, it can be useful, see if you agree, it can be useful... So I might not have any kind of communications. I might not have the ability to hire somebody to do communications for me to bring people on, bring someone onto my board who has an expertise I can't afford. Does that, does that add to its usefulness from your perspective? I think it can, yeah. Boards being able to kind of fill in the gaps and supporting and really taking lead from the team. You okay. know, the team members are the ones who know most about the work, right? But I have board members being micromanagers and, and stuff. We, we've all dealt with those board members. Yep. But if we're talking about aspirations, Joan, I also want us, even the 33% that are effective, I think that in an ideal world, they would operate slightly differently. For example, you know, like this idea of like board members as being very protective of their own mission. And that's it. Yep. You know, I don't. I think that in an ideal world, board members would think about other missions as well. They would think about, huh, how does, my, how does this mission relate to other mission? How do I connect maybe some other board members? How do we think about collective action to protect voting rights and things like that? Like, that's what, yeah. And do you think that what thwarts that today is, we certainly know it's money, Right. What is there, and from your perspective, is there some other things at play besides money that thwarts that today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of influence from the for-profit sector on how we operate. And yeah, and the for-profit sector is like, we need to do this. We need to have competitive advantage. We need to stand out. And so we use a lot of corporate jargon. Like we need to, you know, we, we need to have, we, we need to be competitive for job candidates or, or whatever. Like we say these things. So we were in this sort of competitive sphere and board members, a lot of them are from the corporate sector. So they bring that lens to the nonprofit sector, which in many ways is completely different than the for-profit sector. One of the ways I see that so often is that boards, when they think about some, when they, many, <laughs> most, I don't know, at 33% of third, I don't know. But anyway, a lot of boards will look at success by virtue of how much more money is raised this year versus the previous year. Like that's a perfect example of, uh, and I've seen them set, I've seen organizations set goals for executive directors that say, your goal is to raise $2 million this year. I'm like, that's not a goal, right? That's fuel. <laughs> that is fuel to allow you to have impact. Impact is the goal, right? Money is the fuel. And I do think I do think that we spend a lot of time thinking about, gee, can we raise more money this year than we did last year? And I do think that that stems from a couple of things. The, as you described it, the for-profit issue, 
right? That, that mentality. And as you started the conversation by talking about the sort of funding scarcity, there's also, I think, when you are recruited to a board, and organizations develop institutional arrogance, don't you think? Yeah. Right? And so yes. I, I am convinced that that's why we don't see more mergers is because we can't get out of our way enough to say the whole is greater than the sum of, my, of some of its parts, my friends. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I have a sort of tricky relationship and, and, and views on, on mergers. I feel like some of them are really great. I feel like there should be a few more nonprofits that think about mergers. I'm also a little annoyed that this is something that's expected of nonprofits, you know, kind of like, you know, that we don't expect from other, other sectors. Like we don't go to a cafe and say, hey, why are there eight cafes <laughs> on the, uh, in this one mile radius, huh? Why don't you all merge into one giant cafe? The reality, right? We don't, we don't do that to for-profits, but we seem to be okay as if it's better for one, for there to be one nonprofit. Because we are always thinking about efficiency of money, again, as you, as you mentioned, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Like this relationship with money. When, the, when we don't think about maybe eight nonprofits are needed because of geographic discrepancies or because different people need differently tailored services, right? And when we say there's like too many nonprofits, honestly, what I think is that we really should be careful about what kind of nonprofits are we saying. I feel like there's a whole bunch of indulgent nonprofits they're like, we're going to send T-shirts to African countries or whatever, right? <laughs> Maybe, so when we say too many nonprofits, what we mean is probably we have too many nonprofits led by white people who have no understanding of the context in which they're working. Hmm. When the reality is that we probably need more nonprofits led by disabled people, LGBTQ community members, people of color, et cetera. Yeah, interesting. Uh, there's some crazy, crazy statistic and I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but the number of 501c3 applications to the federal government last year was like 100,000 of them. Like some crazy big number, but what was actually much more startling was how many of them were approved. Like, um, like all but like, like six of them or something. Like it's pretty easy to get a 501c3 status. Yeah. It is, but it's also very easy to find to start a start a uh, cafe business. Fair yeah, enough. I, Fair I can get a business license for like twenty bucks or whatever. I mean, it's not that hard either to do this. Yeah, let's talk about leadership, okay? So, in your asper in the ideal nonprofit, um, is leadership different? What does it look like? Not yeah. What does the leader look like, and how does the leader lead differently? We are seeing, especially among younger professionals, that this sort of hierarchical model of leadership is kind of falling out of favor. It's not to say that we shouldn't have hierarchies, right? Because sometimes it does work and sometimes it may be necessary. But a lot of people are thinking, you know, maybe instead of having one person at the top who gets to determine and veto things and make all the major decisions, that maybe we should have more shared leadership and shared power. So there's more co-directorships now. There's more like a directorship of three people even. In order for this to work, there's several things that have to be in place, right? Because it, it can be very challenging. And I see in the past it has failed because a lot of people did not do the work to put, that's required for it to work. You need to have a lot of trust. You need to have a, an environment where people can be open where, you know, and, and they can give each other feedback. Right, so you mean you need to have a decision-making model that makes sense. So my last organization, RBC, right, the decision-making model that we had was from a book called "Reinventing Organizations" by Frederick Laloux, and he was talking about a decision-making process called the advice process, where whoever is closest to the issue makes the the final decision. And as long as they do two things, they check in with the people who who be most affected by their decision. And they check in with people who have the advice that will give them the best information to, to make the decision. But once they do those things, it's their decision. So let's say, you know, I have a development director and he decides that we're going to throw a, a pajama party for major donors, right? And I'm like, oh my God, no, don't do that. In a traditional model, I'm the ED. I'll just say, I'm sorry, you can't do that. 
right? I'm, I'm going to veto this, use my executive privilege to veto this. Right. But in the model that we instituted at my last organization, all I can say is like, hey, Chris, did you check in with some donors to see whether they might enjoy this? And did you check in with the staff members uh, because they'll have to staff this thing? And did you check in with some other people who might have done a major donor pajama party before? And if Chris is like, yeah, I have, and this is my decision, I as the ED literally cannot veto him unless there's like a safety issue or something, right? Right. You can't so, come in and say that. Well, that, that you can't come in. So you're saying you can't in, in your world, in this world, you can't come in and say, well, that idea was generated by one of our biggest donors. And so we're just going to have to bite the bullet on this one. Yeah. I mean, we leave it to the professionals because we hire people, right? Good leaders know that they hire people who are smarter than them and are better at them in, in different areas. But why do we do that? but then not trust these professionals to do what we hired them to do. It makes no sense. So I'm starting to see a lot more power sharing and decision-making and, and flatter structures for leadership. What does the leader of your aspirational nonprofit look like? Well, I think they need to reflect the community, right? That's that they're serving and they need to be really thoughtful and about lifting up other leaders and creating a, a space. I think we're getting out of this sort of like heroic model of leadership, right? And we can call it servant leadership or whatever. But I feel like some of the best leaders are those who are reflective. You know, I think we're kind of moving away from this sort of extroverted leader and in some ways into like a more introverted, reflective leader who, who can do this work, who can bring people together, whose ego is not front and centered, right? But also leaders who are willing to examine their privilege and understand and, and be okay with giving up certain stuff like power, like resources. And I've met some really amazing leaders doing this work. There was one ED, for example, who decided to drop his salary by like 35% in order to raise up his staff salary, right? These are the types of leaders that we need to start thinking about. And other leaders uh, are like, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't be a leader this time. Uh -huh. Maybe, you know, I, I shouldn't be. I'm not going to apply for this job. So some of the best leaders, ironically, are not going to be leaders. Are the leaders of your ideal nonprofit on average younger than the leaders we see today? Is age going to be an issue? I think there's, there has to be a space for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And the younger professionals, they bring a lot of just amazing uh, perspectives. And, but at the same time, older generations too. And I think I, I get very annoyed by the sort of boomer versus millennial yeah. Gen Z thing. I just, I don't like it yeah. because the reality is that amazing people and assholes come from every generation. <laughs> um, it is true, but I, it, it is a, it is a, the versus thing that you describe is, is at, is at play in a tension that we see in a lot of nonprofits with boomers who run organizations who they have step out of the way. <laughs> yeah, and they're younger staff people who they consider to be sort of mosquito-like. Like they're just like, they're pecking, you know, they're pestering me to death. They're, they're constantly asking to have a voice. Well, to which I always <laughs> respond, that's what they came to the sector to use. Yes, absolutely. And a sensitive leader, no matter what their age or generation is, they will, they're going to listen, right? And be thoughtful about that. So, so that's not sure it's necessarily a generational thing. It's yeah. like, are you listening to are you people listening? around you? Right. Are you listening? Are you talking to people around you? Are you asking? Are you taking, I think the other piece of it, I guess I would add, I think that the best leaders have a, come from a place of curiosity, right? They, right? The question mark becomes their most powerful tool. What should I be doing differently? How do you like working here? <laughs> what should we be doing more of or less of? What other organization yeah. <laughs> is out there that I should that I should know about, and what would a collaboration look like? I think you're also talking to a kind of leadership that is facilitative, uh, and it's a word that comes to my mind as you talk. That uh, yes, I, yeah, I think facilitative is is, is great. I, I I really appreciate you know, these questions that a leader would ask that, that you listed, right? And at the same time, there's also I, I do feel like. Some of the, the best leaders we need also need to take a, like a stand against injustice, right? Mm -hmm. Man, I see a lot of that. Sometimes I see facilitative leaders just like, well, you know, we need to be, uh, we need to be in the middle, we need to be civil, and et cetera. 
when the reality is like, no, okay, if we're going to do this work effectively, we're going to have to take a stand against white supremacy and homophobia and transphobia and ableism and anti-Semitism and so on, right? And the best leaders can't just be, you know, we all need to get along either. No, and I maybe I wasn't, maybe, maybe that's too, maybe that's a soft interpretation of what I meant. I think a facilitative leader can have very, very strong values, right? And, yeah. and, and that's what, I think that's what you're talking about, right? Because I think the ideal nonprofit has a very clear sense of values and lives and lives them and that that and that that a leader is the kind of the the steward of those values or the person who who holds themselves and the organization accountable to them what do you think well I think a lot of nonprofits really understand and live their values, but a lot do not. Yeah. <laughs> and the leaders, yeah, I, you know, right now they do, they, they take it upon themselves to hold up the values and keep people accountable. But like, should they? That is a huge sort of responsibility. And maybe the ideal nonprofit is that everyone keeps us all accountable towards our values, right? And it should not just be on the shoulders of one person who has vast power at the organization. Just a, a couple of more questions before I let you go back to your self-employment. Rant. <laughs> um, or of stuff, yeah. In this aspirational world, what would a nonprofit be capable of that would be different in terms of its impact? So we've talked sort of internally about how it would be structured and what it might look like. Well, how would, what would all of that, how would all of that, what would be the implications of all of that on its ability to have impact? Well, for the short run, it should be able to just be way more responsive to the needs in its communities, right? And in an even more aspirational sense, which I, I really love to think about is that if we can actually get through all the BS and all the power dynamics and the hunger games, that we can start working effectively as a collective to address many of these systemic issues. And they cannot be addressed if we don't really work together in concert with one another. And these issues are things like ensuring that voting rights are protected. You know, I I mean, I say this, but like 500 voter suppression laws have been passed over the last several years. And our sector's response, collective response has been, eh, that's not really in our mission. Sorry, we care about the environment or animals or whatever. When the reality is that everyone needs to care about voting rights. And we gotta and we gotta work on to to uh, to address the tax code. We gotta fix it so that rich people are paying their fair share of taxes. And that we're not just like oftentimes conscience laundering or charity washing for them. Sometimes I love our sector and I feel like we're like we become like the sky mall of extracurricular activities for the rich, you know, or they get to buy these services and we sell it to them. We're like, you know, $500 will serve 10 kids or whatever. We compartmentalize, we transactionalize our work. I feel we can get through all the BS then we can really start working to end many of these systemic issues. So definitely taxes, definitely voting, definitely removing the influence of corporations from politics. And electing more progressive women of color into office. Uh-huh. So just some qu- quick thoughts. Some of the things that would have to be true in the sector in order to move us in the direction of this kind of vision. And I know you're all, you know, you have been very engaged in the community-centric fundraising initiative. Are you seeing, maybe I should leave with this question, are you seeing illustrations that make you hopeful about the possibility of moving in the directions we've talked about today? Yes. Yeah, it's been very hard these past few years. I know everyone has really been, <laughs> been in it. And at the same time, there's, there's lots of hopeful, hopeful things that are happening. The community-centric fundraising movement which, you know, started only about a year and a half ago, even though these ideas have been around for decades, right? And they've been proposed by women of color over decades and oftentimes get dismissed, right? So when, I, when we started working on really formalizing this movement here, we were expecting maybe like 100 people might show up for the webinar. 2,800 people did. 
Yeah. 2,800 people. That's great. And we've been seeing stories of people really doing fundraising differently. We see stories of people giving up funding. They would, they would literally say, you know what, we're doing okay right now. And uh, so we're not going to apply for this grant. Or even or if, uh, I, I, in Seattle, a foundation decides to give $50,000 grants to a bunch of nonprofits. And, I, and the funder told me, they're like, some of the nonprofits, they, they declined the funding. They said, we really appreciate this, but our partner organizations who are led by Black and Indigenous communities, and so they're not doing as well. Mm. Would you mind giving it to them instead? Wow. That's really inspiring to me. And we're seeing more and more of these stories. We're seeing stories of donors engaging with like understanding where their wealth came from. One of my friends, a major donor, discovered through, re- through research and reflection that her, that her family's wealth came from literally stealing a Native family's land. Huh. And she decided that when she gets her inheritance, she's going to give 100% of this money back to the Native community. Because huh. it should not have been her wealth, her family's wealth in the first place. We're seeing more and more of these stories. Yeah. If people want to learn more about the community-centric fundraising initiative, certainly we've done a, you and I had a, conver- had a conversation on a podcast, but where can they go to learn more? Communitycentricfundraising.org. Oh, and there's a Slack channel. I, I highly recommend this. There's over 4,000 people really exploring community-centric fundraising. Fantastic. Fantastic. And you also talked about some other models and the we'll grab from you the information about the Ontario project and what's happening in Vancouver as well. I think this is plenty of food for thought for today, Vu. I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for continuing to rabble rouse because and I and I what I do really appreciate is that it's not just kvetching, right? <laughs> It comes from a, pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it comes from a fierce passion and dedication to the sector, an understanding of how how much more valuable it could be if we did things differently, and your very clear and practical suggestions about what that difference could look like. And we're lucky, I think, to have your voice in the sector, whether you're employed or self-employed or partially employed or whatever it might be. And so I just wanted to say thanks. I think everybody who follows you really, really admires and values what you have to say. Uh, thank you, Joan. And we didn't even get to capacity building. Or <laughs> oh, hell, you might just have, <laughs> so to, I have to come back later. You're going to have to come back. <laughs> you're, you're, you're my only regular customer, uh, Mr. Lay. So um, uh, thanks. Thank you, thanks for the conversation. And as always, it's a, a pleasure. I, I know that we'd be eating hummus together if we, if we both lived in Seattle. And sometime soon, uh, we'll see each other in person. Well, come on up. Organic kombucha, like I said, made out of hemp and quinoa. All right. On me. I can't wait. It'll go so nicely with my Diet Coke. Goodbye, Boo. (laughs) See you later, John. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful, too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.